podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Leicester are on cloud nine. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. And it's my birthday. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. One addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week and one where Carl was had to unfortunately watch from the sidelines again. So Carl, as before, do get well soon, mate. And we both hope that you are back in the fold soon. Although that means the Wally Pip effect is back on as Drew is once again carrying the load. Drew, it's a pleasure to have you on board. How have you been, mate? Well, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Dan. Also, happy birthday to you. And I'm really excited you remembered the Wally Pip reference. That that warms the cockles of my heart. Yeah, I mean, I listened back to it and it made me laugh. So I thought it's definitely going in now that Cole's been disposed for another week. Obviously, we do want him back in the show. But if we can get some more mileage at this Wally Pip reference, it's all good. So uh, before you sort of show your, your wares and show how you can carry the load for another 60 minutes, I'll do the social media bits first. So, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. And also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. So, if you want to join, become a Real Football Cast shareholder, they're not worth any value just yet. But if you want to sort of try and build the community, that's absolutely fine. So, get in touch with me on either way there. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like it, then don't forget to leave a review either. And if you're not a fan of of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud or Acast. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account, because the odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? I guess we have to go to St Mary's, don't we? Because if we thought that Man City's win over Watford a couple of weeks or so ago was emphatic, then Leicester's was just even more, really. A record equaling largest ever win in the Premier League. A record away league win. Drew, it must be said that Leicester's win was nothing short of sensational. Absolutely. This game was incredible to watch, right? Usually when you see a blowout, you think to yourself, oh, this is boring. I'm going to turn this off. I didn't feel that way at all. Leicester was phenomenal in this game. And and I don't buy into the argument of, well, Southampton went down to 10 men very early on. Duly noted. That absolutely happened. But you don't win by nine on accident. You don't lose by nine because you were missing a man. Absolutely not. Leicester were, as you said, sensational in this game. And once again, I think they proved that they have a perfect mix between their attack, their midfield, their defending, which they did not have to do much of uh, this time around. But they really are the real deal. And each and every week they're showing that they deserve and most likely will earn a Champions League spot. That has to be their goal. And every single time they go out on the pitch, they show that they're capable of it. Of course, when a scoreline of that nature comes around, you have to reflect on how bad the losing side were. So you just sort of referenced Ryan Bertrand's sending off. And to be honest, it didn't really have too much of an effect because Leicester were so good. But firstly, 
Did you think it was actually a red card? Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit of a nastier challenge than probably he intended for. But also to a certain degree, it's like, well, you kind of get what you deserve. So I, I didn't have any problem with Bertrand getting sent off in that case. And, and like you referenced, I don't think that's the reason that Southampton lost by nine anyway. So even if he was out on the pitch, maybe they lose by seven instead. Leicester were that clinical. They were that ruthless. And Southampton were simply abject. I mean, they look destitute out there throughout the entire match. So I, I don't think this red card was what changed the game and really sent it into Leicester's, uh, Leicester's favor anyways. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, I don't think it was the defining moment in the game because you look at the balance of the two teams and I think, like you say, it would probably have shaved two goals and it just would have been a hiding and not this absolutely emphatic win. So Southampton, they just fell apart. You know, once they're down to 10 men, you know, they're, what, three down within 20 minutes or something like that? I mean, I can't even sort of remember with the flow of the goals. I know there were so many. I think it was 5-0 by halftime, wasn't it? I know that much. But, you know, they are just crumbling. And Ralph Hüsenhartel was saying that he is taking the blame for that 100%. But surely, you're looking at that and you're thinking, the players have got to take responsibility for that one. Because, personally, I thought that was probably the most abject performance I've ever seen in the lifetime of the Premier League. Yeah. I mean, I, I do give the manager credit a little bit for trying to accept the blame. Because... I think that's what you're supposed to do as a manager is you – or I mean any type of leader. You put your hand up and say, you know what? This one was on me, whether it was or wasn't because I don't care what tactics you gave Saints in that match. They were not going to stop Leicester at any point. And so again, credit credit to Hausenhudel for, for saying that. I don't really think it was it – was his, his – I don't think he's at fault. He's not culpable, especially because – you give up, like you said, five in the first half. Maybe the second half you can give him more blame because his team talk obviously didn't galvanize them to to lock down and shut the door and not allow any more. And instead it got you know twice as embarrassing. So maybe you can put a little bit of blame on him for the second half. But the first half, I mean really that's on the players to be that bad. And I mean one of the goals was before uh, they went down anyways. I believe that was Chilwell's goal, the first one. And that was before they went down to 10 men. So, again, I, I, Southampton is – I think you were right. This is one of the worst performances at least I have ever seen in the Premier League and probably most people have. And, I mean, there were Saints fans leaving the stadium after two or three. And that was in the first 15 or 20 minutes. And by halftime, you know, the stadium was emptying out. And then in the second half, it, it, it almost looked like a closed-door match, which is how bad it was at St. Mary's. So this was terrible. And for Hoodle. He has Manchester City coming up next, and I really think he's fighting for his job, especially if they lose in in dramatic fashion again, it's hard to see him keeping his job. Well, that was going to be my next question, so you read my mind there, because straight after that defeat, I looked at the sort of next manager to go odds, and Hootle had gone to the favourite, and I think a lot of that comes down to knee-jerk, where people go, after that result, he's got to go. So obviously he's been given a stay of execution for this week coming up, but you've then got Man City. Man City have already beaten Watford 8-0, and if Man City really fancy it and they want to put a team to the sword, they will do so. So there is every opportunity this could be his last hurrah in charge of Southampton, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of it probably is hyper-reactionary. That's just kind of the world that we live in now with you know 24-hour media, 
Twitter and, and all of those things. And, you know, one bad loss doesn't necessarily reflect his entire tenure as manager or their season. However, I think this match kind of does because they're back in the relegation zone and they have not looked up to par really this entire year. I mean, for the past few years, Southampton has flirted with relegation. This isn't the first time. It's not as if Hausenhudel is bringing them down in any uh, way, shape, or form. He definitely hasn't helped, though. When he came in last season, you did see the new manager bump a little bit. This year, though, they're back down to kind of where they were exactly without him. So is he the problem? Probably not. Is he the solution? It definitely seems like not as well. And I think a lot of teams kind of do sack managers in the hope of getting the new manager bounce and that that will help them in their survival effort. And so I I think Southampton could enact the same action pretty soon as a sort of Hail Mary attempt to, to save their season. Yeah, we're getting to that point of the campaign now, aren't we? Where chairman are going to be looking at the situation and thinking, do I stick, do I twist? And you're absolutely right with Southampton. They sacked uh, Pellegrino, got Mark Hughes in. There was that little lift, was enough. They stayed up. And then, obviously, they regressed to the mean where they were when Hughes got sacked. And then, obviously, look at the graph again. There's another blip of an, of an increase when Arsenal comes in. So it's you're almost sort of asking yourself, how many more times can you get away with that especially when the squad seems to be sort of regressing itself and they're not really willing to put too much money in. And I think their template is now trying to sort of get young players blooded, try and sell them for a profit. But in the short term, that's not going to work if it costs you Premier League safety. Yeah, that's that's a very cruel way to blood in young players, let me tell you. Well, absolutely, especially, yeah. especially I mean, not, not just the 9-0 loss here, but... If you're going out every single weekend and getting pummeled, even if the scoreline is a lot closer, for a young player, that can be extremely damaging to confidence. They might start thinking to themselves, wow, I really don't belong. This is the only type of team that I'm able to get into, and we're awful, and we're going down. So, I mean, I I think you're right. They will use the opportunity to do so. I think it could have more negative... Uh, effects and knock-ons than they hope for or wish for if we go back to Leicester quickly then does that win make them genuine top four contenders for the season ahead because obviously they're not going to score nine each week but you can sense this is a team playing with a real hunger you know especially considering how young most of that first level is obviously you've got like the elder statesman like Vardy and Schmeichel opposite ends of the pitch but you know the rest of that team Tillemans and DD, Barnes, Madison, Perez there's a real nucleus of young talent looks really exciting and you sort of think to yourself 10 games in it's no accident where they are especially so comfortably in third when you look at the the teams below them are they in for the long run yeah I absolutely think so so I mean even going back a month ago on my show on the counter with Drew Pels I've been talking about Leicester being in contention for the top four they have a better shot than Arsenal and Manchester United and Spurs of getting in the top four and at that time I said Chelsea maybe not more than Chelsea now but I think absolutely they can get there. And and the the reason it convinces me about Leicester and what they're doing is you see this ruthlessness out of them beating Southampton 9-0 when they uh, destroyed Newcastle as well uh, just a few weeks ago. And the same thing. They took advantage of uh, a relegation-battling team. They didn't let off the gas, and they destroyed them by five. And then against Burnley last weekend... They 
go down a goal against a team which gives you nothing, especially when they go up a goal early and they're playing on the road and Leicester come back to win. They ran with Liverpool in the second half, scored a goal to, to, to equalize, ended up losing the game. But they're winning in all these different ways. They're going up against the top teams like Liverpool, and they're showing that they can compete. And so I do think they have, at, 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 other than uh, Liverpool and Manchester City, I think Leicester right now have the best shot of finishing in the top four. I'm sold on them. I am completely convinced. Brendan Rodgers has them hummy. He gets the tactics right every time. He gets substitutions correct every time. Jamie Vardy is back to his best, and he's leading the Premier League in goals right now. I am 100% sold on Leicester finishing in the Champions League spots. Yeah, if I had to uh, pick the four now, I'd probably pick them as they are. Maybe even that, that order, to be honest. But I think, you know, Leicester, they're in for the long run now. I think the fact that Brendan Rodgers is just... He's made that group of players just better. You know, obviously, that's the coach's job, ultimately. But it's working. You know, the, the fact he had that longer pre-season, I think it was almost a masterstroke getting him in at that point. You know, for him to leave Celtic at February to sort of move to Leicester, you think, well, that's quite a, a bold move, especially when a team is going to be winning a title in Scotland, although it's sort of devalued quite a lot, the Scottish f- football scene. But, um, yeah, I mean, Leicester really reaping the benefits now. So if we look at the two teams that currently sit above the Foxes, of course, they're Man City and Liverpool. And Man City, at one point, did bridge the gap at the top to just three points, albeit Liverpool played a day later. So, a difficult first 45 minutes for City. I think masters of their own sort of frustration, almost, because they had so many chances, it just needed one to get the the ball rolling, as it were. But it turned into a routine win after 90. So, I guess the only blot on the copybook will be the suspension of Fernandinho for this weekend. That was a ridiculously idiotic tactical foul from Fernandinho because yes it was for a second yellow plus it's not as if that counterattack is now gonna lead the charge back for Aston Villa I think it was with three or four minutes remaining in the match and City is up three nil there's no reason to take that second yellow card especially when City is already low on center backs right why is Fernandinho playing there in the first place because Laporte is hurt because Stones is untrustworthy because Rodri just went down, who was also a makeshift center back. This was absolutely idiotic from Fernandinho because now with the red card, he misses the next match. Now, as we previously referenced, it's Southampton and most likely City will do just fine against them. But that's beyond the point. This to me, if if I was Pep, I would be infuriated with Fernandinho for for taking that second yellow card. And again, it wasn't just a poor challenge or he came in late on accident. He knew exactly what he was doing, which is what makes it so absurd. And for Pep, he has to be absolutely enraged with him. And then now, of course, he's in a bit of a predicament even deeper with one less makeshift center back already. I mean, once again, there's not too much that we'll learn from the game, especially from a City point of view, but... What did you make from the rather contentious goal between Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva? Firstly, who do you think scored it? More importantly, should it have stood? So I thought De Bruyne had it. I did not see any touch from David Silva. I didn't see any change in trajectory or angle after David Silva had apparently touched it. I think now uh, 
if this was Harry Kane, you know he'd be claiming that goal all day. <laughs> yeah, you got a point. <laughs> uh, but I think it was funny after De Bruyne said an interview, he's like, oh, well, David said he got it, so that's fine. And especially, I think, for Kevin De Bruyne, he's more of an assist maker anyway, so I, I don't think he really – I don't think it's going to bother him too much. He's not going to lose sleep over it. And in terms of possibly, I think, was it Sterling, who they might have said was offside or obstructing the keeper? I, I guess he might have been. I think that would have been a really tight call anyways, and I don't think that's the reason that the goal went in. So I have no problem with that goal standing. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a real tough call against City because it's all about, you know, if De Bruyne scores the goal, then uh, sorry, Sterling's not active. If Silva gets the faintest of touches, it then makes Sterling active. And, you, you know, it's just all about you're looking for a touch that might not even be there. So I think on the balance of probabilities, even with VAR involved, I think it was the right decision. So we'll let that one lie. But as for Aston Villa, can Dean Smith's men take at least some solace from a solid first 45 minutes? I mean, I don't think it's going to be a result that defines their season in any way. You know, it's not a heavy drubbing. It's against the champions at the Etihad. So... You know, there are positives to take from that, but I guess for them it's just a case of dust it off, move on to next week. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It was a very positive first half for them, especially defensively, because that's a place where Villa has struggled this this season, right? Attack-wise, they've been pretty good. They've scored quite a few. Where they have struggled, though, is the defensive side. And so I think you can take some positives from that against City, a very attack-minded team. You know, one of the best attacks in England, of course, if not, you know, Europe and the world. And to keep them quiet for the first 45 minutes, I think you can kind of look at that and say, you know what, guys, good job. We have to be better in the second half. We can't concede immediately pretty much from kickoff. Other than that, though, I think they can be a little bit happy with their performance in the first stanza and uh, take some positives from that. Of course, with City closing the gap to three points, the onus was then on Liverpool to extend it back to six. And eventually they did so after they got the better of Tottenham, which seems to be a phrase I utter too much uh, this season. So obviously Spurs obviously gave him a game as after 47 seconds we were in front. Stunned everyone, stunned myself. Great sort of positioning from Harry Kane after Human Song's effort deflected onto the bar. But unfortunately, that was about as good as it got. So Drew, we know in football, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And fans are always guilty of saying, oh, but if we did this... You know, after the moment it's happened. So, with Tottenham getting the best of Red Star Bill grades so easily, and with a much changed team, you know, all these sort of one to ways have been dropped, and you sort of think to yourself, is this coincidence? Is this the new era that Tottenham finally need? Can you make any sense why Pochettino then brought them all back in on Sunday? Yeah, so, so this is something we talked about uh, last time on the podcast, was if Pochettino needed to just kind of throw out all the problem players and just possibly take some hits, whether that be in the league or Champions League, whatever it happens to be, against Red Star that he did that, and it actually worked wonders. In this match, he reverted back to some of those guys. And I think it's really hard to blame him for doing that because, though, I mean, the, the guys who played, especially take, right, um, Christian Eriksen, he, he is one of Spurs' best players. So continually leaving him out... I think is pretty tough to to justify. Danny Rose also at left back. He probably is the best left back in the squad. And when you're going up against a team like Liverpool, it's hard to knowingly and purposely 
leave out some of your best players, right? Go back to the Champions League final when Harry Kane played after being injured and Lucas Moura had uh, done well and, and gotten Spurs to the to the final anyways. You know, at that point, I didn't blame Pochettino either for playing Kane. That's your guy. You have to play him. And so I think he kind of did the same thing here. Now, in both situations, against Liverpool this weekend and in the Champions League final, like you said, hindsight is twenty twenty. So you can now say, oh, well, see, it didn't work. Sure, that that's true. But I, I completely understand where Pochettino is coming from now. Maybe because of this is when he goes, you know what? You guys aren't playing anymore. Any of you who wanted out, you got it. You're out. See you later. You're not going to play. And he is going to uh, utilize you know, so, some of the, some of the uh, squad players more. And maybe this loss is kind of the thing that will kickstart that effort. I mean, you look at players like Christian Eriksen, and you talk about someone who's handling their notice and just doesn't want to be there. So I can certainly understand that Playing your best players when possible, regardless of contract status, is something that makes sense. You know, look at Aaron Ramsey at Arsenal last season. Was going, but never dropped off for Arsenal. You know, so much so that he even injured himself just through work rate. And I think that's got to be quite commended. Unfortunately, Ericsson is not anywhere near that mould right now. So, does he sort of encompass the malaise that Tottenham are in right now? Especially when you've got someone like Giovanni Lo Celso looking to break into the team. Because... When is he going to get his opportunity? I mean, apart from passing the ball sideways, I don't have absolutely any idea what that player does and what he can offer because he hasn't been given the chance at the moment. So at what point do we sort of just think, OK, Ericsson, this is not working. You know, this is almost done. And if you don't want to be a part of Spurs, then you're going to have to sit this one out. The Celso, you're the future. Here's your minutes. Go get the opportunity. Like, surely that's got to be the logic going forward. Yeah, Ericsson definitely is emblematic of the issues at Spurs. I think a lot of those players, him, maybe Danny Rose, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, I think they are mentally checked out. And that's why they can't perform no matter how hard they try. You know, something I've been thinking about is because Erickson isn't playing as well, and like you mentioned, take Aaron Ramsey just recently with Arsenal, who was playing for his next contract, I almost wonder if Erickson's deal, although it you know, shouldn't be done, it would be tapping up. I wonder if his next deal is already done and completed, at least, you know, verbally, whether that be with Real Madrid or whoever he's he's going to go to. I wonder if they kind of have a silent agreement. And so to him, he's like, well, I already know what's happening. I'm checked out. I don't need to worry about this anymore because my next deal is locked in. I'm not saying that's the case. I don't have any insider information. But because he's not playing with any bit of fire with any bit of, of desire to get a new contract, I almost wonder if it's now, or if it's already taken care of, and that's why. And I think you're right, because he is playing so poorly, and what looks to be without any care in the world, I, I think he does need to be taken out of out of the 11, and for an extended period. It could be Lo Celso. I think Ndombele right now is probably first in line to replace him, especially when he has played this year, I think he's shown a lot better than Lacelso has. But does Lacelso deserve his chance? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he should get that. And I think you know, playing some of the the bottom half table teams, or maybe some, well, I guess not League Cup, but FA Cup matches later on in the season, might be the only places he gets his chance, at least right now. And after he proves himself, then he might make his way into the eleven uh, more frequently. 
right, I can't spend all 60 minutes lamenting Spurs, so we should give credit to Liverpool as well, because if Tottenham's full-backs were poor, Liverpool's once again proved to be on a different level. I mean, you look how good Robinson and Alexander-Arnold were compared to Aurier and Rose. They're just worlds apart right now. Um, the crosses that the Liverpool duo were putting in were just simply sensational. You know, if it was on another day, it could have been 4-5-1 just from well-executed crosses. More importantly, what did you make of the penalty call when Serge Aurier fell Sadio Mane in the box? You know, it was very similar to the call that Mane won against Leicester as well. What I found so fascinating was Mane's quickness and recognition to see essentially Aurier swing in his leg to clear it, and somehow he got around him to get his leg in front, and on Aurier's, you know, uh, swing of the leg, he just bashes Mane. And because of that, that that is a penalty. Mane didn't foul to get into that position in any way. Aurier, obviously, he has he has no clue that it's happening. He doesn't see Mane behind him. But credit credit to the Liverpool forward for getting himself in a great position, winning the penalty, and what happened or what ended up being the the match winner as well. So I think credit to him for that. Yeah, I mean, even from a Spurs point of view, I can't have any complaints, really. You could almost sort of just see it unfolding in front of your eyes that Aurier's beating for pace and then he you know, checks him back inside. And he's always got something rash or stupid in him. And that was the perfect moment or the imperfect moment where it's going to happen. So, such as it is. But again, you know, just throughout the game, Spurs taking the lead after, what, 47 seconds. There's that cliche you can sometimes score too early because then you're just inviting pressure for the rest of the game. You know, that's all you're dealing with. And once going in front, obviously I know Sun hit the bar in the second half, which again could have changed the, the complexion of the game completely. But there's just constant Liverpool attacks, really. And Spurs didn't really seem to have an outball after that, did they? Yeah, Gazaniga stood on his head in this match, and he had to. Because without him, Liverpool could have had five, six, or seven easily. Because you're just constant pressure from Liverpool. The fullbacks were fantastic, like you referenced earlier, and helped whip in a lot of those crosses and and set up a lot of those attacks and chances on goal. Here's the thing I want to say, though, is I I think people are overhyping Liverpool, especially after this match. Look, Liverpool were great, uh, 100%. They dominated, after the first 15 or 20 minutes, they absolutely dominated the game. Spurs did not have an out ball. They couldn't get out of their own half. Look, I I recognize all of that. If you look at Liverpool's recent matches, though, four of their last five matches, they've only won by one goal. They won by one against uh, Spurs here. They won by one against Leicester. They won by one against Sheffield United. In that match, they weren't really good. They escaped on a howler. They only won by one against Chelsea, and really there it was from two set pieces. So Liverpool are kind of escaping some games right now. Against Manchester United, they uh, drew 1-1. In the Champions League, they were up three at the half, ended up winning 4-3. So I I think people are overhyping Liverpool a little bit. And they're taking all these wins as, oh, look, this is a this is a title-winning team. And and I, I get where that's coming from, but I just think they're a little too overhyped. I think all the calls, especially like we talked about with Mane and Aurier in this one, against uh, Leicester, they had the, the penalty towards the end. 
against Sheffield United. You had the howler from Dean Henderson. And so everything seems to be falling Liverpool's way right now. And I just don't think that can continue for the entire season. And so I think they're going to be dropping points, whether that's through draws or losses. And I'm just not sold that they are far and away the best team. I'm not sold that they're running away with this. And I, I, I just think they're a little bit overhyped right now. I mean, I guess we'll really know when they face Man City in a couple of weeks. The results you sort of mentioned, if they were towards the end of the season, they'd be labelled as a team that's got the pedigree to win a title because it looks like you're grinding out wins. So I think people are getting perhaps caught up in in the numbers of, you know, uh, what is it, 55 points from 57 in the you know that's been on offer, um, two defeats in 50. You know, these got big headline stats. That it's sort of creating this juggernaut sort of theory behind Liverpool, which is not totally incorrect, but you are right in the sense that when you actually look at the deeper context of how they're winning, they're not actually blowing teams away. More importantly, though, they are winning. So when you consider that Man City, I know they've sort of lost twice, but more often than not, they they don't draw. They just win, win, win. So you have to keep winning to keep going. So it's going to be, like I say, the acid test will be when they face Man City. If they can keep the gap at six points with that, you know, in the bank as well, then you can start perhaps theorising that Liverpool might have a better chance. But last season, they threw away, what, a seven-point lead at one point? So we're not anywhere near concluding this one just yet. And we're not anywhere near concluding this show because on the other half of this break, we'll be back and Drew's going to be talking about Captain America. So don't go anywhere. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. You just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. I hope you're still there. Before Drew talks about Captain America and his fantastic performance at Turf Moor, we're going to play the Bills because it's time to play Loser Pool. That's right, it's time to suggest our guaranteed losers. I'll recap last week's picks. I went for Crystal Palace and they drew at Arsenal, so I was wrong. Drew went for Aston Villa to lose at Man City and he was correct. And Cole backed his very own Tottenham to lose at Liverpool, and he was correct. So, obviously, you know, confidence in his own there, but he's correct. And more importantly, he's still top of the leaderboard. He's got a 100% six points from six. That's three correct picks. Drew's hot on his heels with four, and I'm bottom of the pile with two. So, I've got to do um, a lot better because it's not looking good right now. And obviously, because Carl can't be with us today, he's also been good enough to radio in his picks. So, he's gone for Aston Villa to lose at home to Liverpool which I can completely understand why, what the form that Liverpool are in, and we've sort of just mentioned all their sort of runs and big numbers. But Drew, over to you. Who's your guaranteed loser this week? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with the home team. I'm going with a Chelsea win over Watford. So oh. Watford, guaranteed losers. Okay, so Watford obviously still looking for their first win of the season. They've played 10, drawn 5, but obviously not 1-1. One, one. So um, I can understand why you've gone for Watford. Is this the week they finally get off the mark? Who knows, but... With that in mind, I'll go for Southampton. It's got to be, surely. I mean, they can't, you know, obviously getting pumped 9-0 last week. You'd think maybe there's a performance, but when you've got Man City away, I can't see that happening either. So 
It's um, logical picks this week. Nothing too um, outlandish, but I'll recap them anyway. Carl's gone for Villa to lose at home to Liverpool. Uh, sorry, Drew's gone for Watford to lose at home to Chelsea. And I've gone for Southampton to lose away at Manchester City. And we'll see how they unfold and, we'll, we, and we will review them next Tuesday. So, right, as I was saying, Drew... Captain America has been unleashed, and you must be absolutely delighted with that performance against Burnley on Saturday. You know, the the only time I've ever cheered louder for a goal was, and I, I don't know if you'll remember this one, or a lot of the listeners if, if they're British, is the 2010 World Cup. The U.S. was playing Algeria in the final group game, and they were about to get knocked out. They were tied nil-nil in stoppage time. And that was the famous Landon Donovan goal. The first shot got stopped by Clint Dempsey. Landon Donovan followed up the second attempt and put them into the knockout rounds. And that was the year that they played England with uh, Robert Greenshowler. I'm sure you remember that one. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so so it, was, it was that World Cup, and it was the final group game where Donovan scored, dove at the corner flag. It's probably the most famous goal in all of U.S. soccer history. Now, that's national team. But as you can imagine a goal in stoppage time that sends your national team through to the knockout rounds, winning the group also, obviously, is, is a huge moment. And you can imagine what I was doing, you know, yelling and screaming and excitement. That's how excited I got to see Christian Pulisic score against Burnley. The first goal was fantastic, especially because he slowed down to you know, try and fake the defender, which I thought was the wrong move because then I thought, oh, well, now the defender can stick his leg out and block the shot. But he ended up scoring nutmegged. I think it, it was Loten and Tarkovsky. I think there was a second uh, defender behind him. We nutmegged both of them into the back of the net. And the jubilation on his face is was exactly equal to the jubilation on my face. And then the second goal was even more fantastic, this time with his right foot. And then the third goal was just dreamland. I couldn't believe it. Perfect hat trick. His first time scoring for Chelsea all in the same game. Youngest American to score a hat trick in the Premier League. Youngest Chelsea player to score a hat trick in the Premier League. It was absolutely off the charts. There is, it, it's one of those moments where you know they say, how do you feel? And oh, I can't describe it. Like That's really what it was for me watching him because this is a guy that I have been following since he was 16 or 17 whenever he broke out with the U.S. Na uh, men's national team and with Dortmund. And as you've called him correctly, Captain America, this is a guy that kind of is carrying U.S. soccer and the entire you know, U.S. soccer world at this point. And to see him succeed in such an emphatic way and finally break out after early season struggles was absolutely phenomenal. What did you make of Hudson Odoi's booking for a perceived dive? Because originally it was given as a penalty, I believe, and then called back through VAR. So I thought it was. Yes, he went to ground, but I didn't think it was necessarily a dive. Like it wasn't a penalty, but I don't think a booking was necessary either. So what did you make of of that uh, incident? Yeah, so it looked as if he was more jumping to avoid the leg that was that was stuck in. I think the reason they went back to call it a dive and give him a card is because he argued it. If he just went down and kind of, you know, was like, oh, you know, head in the grass and like, oh, you know, didn't didn't win this challenge, then I think it would have been fine. But the fact that he looked up at the at the ref, threw his hands up, expecting the penalty, 
I think that's the reason that they went when they looked back at it said, oh, this is a dive, especially because it was called a penalty. So therefore he is deceiving the match official. And so I think that's where it really came from. Now, I personally don't have a problem with diving. To me, it's an art form. I would never teach children this is the way that you play. But to me, I don't have a problem with it because I think in every sport you try and, you know, pull one over on the referee in order to help your team. So I don't I don't have a problem with it. I know it's kind of a cultural difference uh, in Europe and in England, especially it's, it's seen as as reprehensible. And so I, I understand where the card comes from. I actually do think it was justified. I mean, the scoreline didn't really reflect the overall performance when you think about it because Chelsea obviously let their foot off the pedal once four goals up. And I did like Frank Lampard's reaction after the game because he said that he was telling his own players to cheer up because they were moping about not keeping a clean sheet and looking at it as a bad thing. And he was saying, no, look, you should enjoy this. It's been a, a great performance. So I thought that was quite refreshing. But what was your take on that and ultimately not getting the clean sheet at Turf Moor? I mean, is there much sort of reason to, to worry about that? I agree with Lampard on this one. I, I do like that the players are disappointed that they let their foot off the gas because as as a player as someone who's you know grinding and fighting for 90 minutes i appreciate that they feel they could have done better again though i agree with lampard because i think there was so much good in this game it was a completely comprehensive victory and and especially jay rodriguez's goal was just a wonder strike from you know 25 yards out or whatever it was and so I, I think Lampard's right in that the positives from this game far outweighed any of the negatives. It's just that those two goals came so late on that it could feel as if Chelsea not failed, but kind of uh, dropped the ball a little bit towards the end. So I understand where the players are coming from. I think Lampard is right, though, in telling them, hey, don't worry about it. You guys were phenomenal throughout the entire – or, well, throughout 85 minutes. And, you know, we we played them off the pitch the entire night. So don't worry. Don't fret about this. Don't uh, be disappointed in any way. I think he's spot on telling his team that. I mean, if we look at the bigger picture now in terms of the Premier League table, you're eight points clear of my beloved Spurs. And you'd have to say that although there has been misfortune from – the rest of the big six, you know, you look at Arsenal, Manchester United, you've certainly made the most of the opportunities afforded to you. So it's not just that you're doing bad, obviously you've, you're doing your bit as well. So more importantly, do you think there's a chance that the transfer ban could be lifted in January? And if it is, would you want to see big name players bought in? Or would that then upset the balance? Like, Does this nucleus of players need the season to fully show what they can do and hopefully get you back into the Champions League? Or actually, so I say, sorry, back into the top four? Well, I, I think there is a possibility the transfer ban gets lifted. I don't think Chelsea need to do anything, though. And the reason is because, you, you're right, it could upset the balance a little bit. And, and I was actually going back and forth with a Chelsea blogger about this on Twitter. And I, I think if Chelsea brings in someone, especially someone in attack, where they've been fantastic this season, I think more it shows a sign of disrespect towards the players, especially all of these young guys, hudson Adoy, uh, Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Christian Pulisic. These guys have been fantastic. And if you're bringing someone in who could uh, replace them, especially if it's a big money move, I think your chances of keeping them happy over the long term 
are what kind of take a hit. So that's where I would think Chelsea don't want to upset the balance, especially if you look at Tammy Abraham. He still hasn't signed a new contract yet. They've kind of been in negotiations for the past few months. And if you're now going to bring in a striker, let's say, you know, uh, Timo Werner or whoever is, is out on the market, I think you're you're going to upset him and he might think to himself, why am I going to sign a new contract if they're just going to keep bringing in players to kind of challenge for my starting role? Not that he should be complacent and not that Chelsea should just say, you know what, Tammy, we're going to let you play here for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that, but I, I just find it disrespectful to go out in the open market when all of these youngsters are playing so well. The chemistry between them is obviously fantastic, and that's part of the key to their success. And it seems as if they don't really need that. What I would say would be better is play out this season. And if they finish in the Champions League spot, great. Next summer, you can you know, improve the squad by bringing in people because you want to go deeper in the Champions League than they will this year. You want to get a higher spot in the top four than you do this year. If you miss out on the Champions League, well, then your argument is, well, look, we didn't get to the Champions League. We need to strengthen the squad. So I, I, I think Chelsea need to wait until the summer until they go purchase anyone, especially attack-wise. They are, of course, the top club in London right now, and they also have a healthy four-point gap over Arsenal, who themselves threw away a two-goal lead at Crystal Palace. Oh, sorry, at home to Crystal Palace, I should say. So... We'll get to why that happened in a moment, but the headlines were captured by Granite Xhaka, whose possession of the Arsenal captain armband looks in serious danger. Surely after his outburst, he can't be wearing that armband for much longer, can he? No, there. I think there's only... there's only This moment, I think it's a huge story, because I think this moment and how Emery and Arsenal handle this will make their season go one way or the other. And I think there's only two outcomes. Number one, and which I favor is Unai Emery and Arsenal need to publicly strip Granite Shaka of the captain's armband and he needs to be dropped from the squad with immediate effect indefinitely not even in the 18 put him with the reserve team or I'm sorry the the youth team training he right now cannot be with the squad and the reason to me is yes he disrespected the club and the fans and especially the team walking off the pitch so slowly in a time that they want to score another goal and and regain the lead at home in a London derby essentially and the fact that he threw the captain's armband down brushed his coach's hand aside when he tried to give him uh, a handshake ripped the jersey off to me you can't do that. And to me, that's quitting on the team. He didn't stay to watch the end of the match. And reportedly, he left the stadium before the match was even over. He showered and, and went home. So to me, that's quitting on the team. And if I'm a player, I don't care how much they say they like him. I don't care how much they say, you know, in the dressing room, he's a great guy. To me, he's quit on the team. And there's no coming back from that. And so I think Emery has to be very, very firm with him. And something that my, my co-host on my podcast said, he goes, well... I don't know if Emery has the cojones to, to do that to Shaka. And I think he's right. And that's why I think this has one of two outcomes. Either em Emery does all of this, strips Shaka of the armband publicly and, and removes him from the squad, or Emery gets fired. 
I think those are really the only two outcomes because if he doesn't do that, he shows he has no backbone. He has no control over his players. And I think it's very likely that the fans who are already divided on Emery and Shaka could outright revolt. And I could see them choosing to have Arsenal play a match with an empty stadium. I could very easily see fans doing that. Because, ultimately, what does this say about Emery and the authority that he has over the club? Because Koscielny, another captain, he sort of almost disgraced the club. Yes, he was sold eventually, but he didn't go to the pre-season tour. You know, a huge lack of disrespect there. You've now got Xhaka. They say that there's a break clause in the contract for Emery at the end of the season, but the way things are panning out, he might not even get there because the old issues that cost Arsene Wenger his position after that lengthy tenure are now rearing their head once more. So, you know, it's almost Arsenal, well, they're not really going backwards, but they're not sort of progressing in the direction they want to go. So how long has Emery got? There's no way he manages this club beyond the season. Really? I, no, there's absolutely no way. May, may he get fired before that you know, uh, in the next couple of months? Sure, that, that might happen. But I, even if Arsenal somehow come back and finish in the top four, I still don't think he, he returns to the Emirates next year. I think there's there's been too much consternation, too much fan unrest. And if he was brought in to be, yes, the successor to Arsene Wenger, but to kind of revamp the club, he hasn't done that. And so I think, why would you continue with him? And especially something that's really gotten me is, you know, at Sevilla, at PSG, he was known as this tactical genius and mastermind. But you haven't really seen any of that play out at Arsenal. And so something that was supposedly his strength, he hasn't used to his or the club's benefit in you know a year and a half. And so I think there's absolutely no way he stays with the club beyond this season. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree, to be honest, because if his remit is, you know, gets out the doldrums, gets back in the top four, they don't look like they're going to be doing that this season either. And it's just sort of, like you say, why give him the third season if he's not hitting the brief that he's been given? So... We'll have to see how it pans out. You know, there's still a lot of time for him to turn that around, but it's just there's always that undercurrent of unease at the Emirates, and it's just starting to, you know, get more vicious once again, isn't it? It's always about this time of year as well. But, you know, Sunday, they were 2 0 up, and you would have thought at that point, plain sailing, really. Palace then dealt a VAR lifeline, if not the only time that afternoon. So, first, Sahar's book for diving, but then it was overturned and a penalty was awarded. So, did you agree with Martin Atkinson's original decision or the VAR callback and penalty? So, initially watching it, I, I did think that it was a foul, but I could also see, yeah, it looked like, w- watching it live full speed, it, it did look like, yeah, maybe it was a dive. I, I, I thought there was contact. What I appreciated the most was, yes, VAR turned it over, but with VAR turning it over, I like that Martin Atkinson went up to him, said no yellow card, and, and almost looked to apologize. And and I think that's something that he should be doing, to say, look, I got it wrong, we fixed it, and you know now here here's your penalty. So I, I did like that from, from Martin Atkinson. I thought he did the right thing as the, the referee in that situation. So from that point, obviously, they then levelled with Jordan Ayew, making it 2-2 in the second half, and it was left for VAR to help Palace out once again. So Socrates thought he scored the winner. There was a bit of a coming together in the box. What did you make of that one? I thought it was a bit harsh, but then again, under the of the law, you can see why it's been given. So if you're a Palace fan, you're delighted. If you're an Arsenal fan, you're probably disgusted. But we're neutrals, so where do you sit? 
I, I sit on the fence with this just because I have no idea what VAR is doing anymore. No, that's I, it. That really is it, isn't it? I have no idea because, I mean, and, and not just these two calls, but throughout the entire weekend, it almost seemed as if VAR protocol was changed from the way they operated the first nine weeks uh, of the season. So uh, this one here, I, I, I think you're right. Letter of the law, there probably was enough in there to to call uh, or to, to 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 bring it back, but I, I it was so I, maybe not soft. I think you used a better word, harsh, to to give that foul and take away the goal, and especially I think I, I truly do think if the VAR official was in the stadium, whether that be you know pitch side watching a monitor or or even just in in an office in the stadium. I don't know if he reverses that call. I truly do think kind of being in in a neutral location helps because if you're Martin Atkinson, you go to the screen even even though you know the the Premier League doesn't use that. You've got to deal with the fans after reversing that decision and I think that would be much more difficult to do in the heat of the moment in the stadium with the fans bearing down on you. So I do think the neutral site of VAR contributed to reversing that call. Yeah, I mean, VAR's just, is this, someone switched it off and it's just like, I'll just, you know, we're back to, well, we had a really high bar, which was unobtainable and no decisions were getting overturned. And now it's just like, well, let's overturn everything because Brighton versus Everton, I think that was the first penalty given from a VAR overturn, wasn't it? You know, it was not given at first when uh, Keane stepped on Connolly's foot, which again, quite harsh really I thought he's not really sort of looking to to stamp on him you know he's always concentrating on the ball and he obviously there is contact and it's given and you think well you know last week would that have been given probably not so no one knows where they stand but out of that game it looks like the guillotine is being prepped for Marco Silva once again isn't it yep it definitely is going to the penalty call I think you're right before it wouldn't have been overturned because there was one with I think it was David Silva against maybe Bournemouth? Yep, that's right. Where he got stepped on and they didn't overturn it, yet this one they did. It was, In the Everton-Brighton game, it was perfectly analogous. It was, I mean, probably even down to the same area within the penalty box. So, yeah, again, there's no way to discern what's going on with VAR at this point. And I, I, I did think this was... A foul. I thought it was a deserved penalty because he did step on uh, Connolly and he impeded him from continuing his run. And, and so I actually did think this one was a penalty and correctly so. Now for Everton and Marco Silva, this was a horrific loss. Not just because they lost on the road, but because they took the lead in the second half. Dominic Calvert-Lewin came on as a sub and gave them what looked to be the winner, and then for them to go down and give away the penalty, and then for the last goal in stoppage time to creep in on an own goal, this was... So I don't know how Marco Silva survived Monday and didn't get fired. Now it's Tuesday, and I haven't read anything yet this morning, US time, uh, of him, uh, UK time afternoon for you, of him getting fired. And it's just appalling to me that he has. Now, let me say this. Marco Silva, I don't know why he happens to be failing upward because 
he did not survive the drop with Hull, left there, at Watford was not great, and then got fired for speaking with Everton behind their back. Then he takes the Everton job. They're not doing good. I mean, at this point, he might as well just take over Manchester City. He's just failing <laughs> upward. No, you're absolutely right. A bloke's stealing a living, really. For those exact examples, you think, how is he so fashionable? You know, why do chairmen seem to be smitten with trying to get his services? I can't understand it. You know, you can have one bad job. I get that. That's football. But like you say, you can, you're now three bad jobs in, but you're going up the ladder when really you should be going bad job maybe a bad job in the championship, another one there. It's just, there's no logic about this. So I think if he loses to Spurs, they might pull the trigger because I think a manager's got to go soon. It's getting to that point now. And I just think that if they lose at home to Tottenham, which is not going to be, you know, a clear cut by any stretch of the imagination because Tottenham aren't great either. But I think two managers, both under pressure, is going to make for quite a good game. And I think if Everton do lose, I think that might be the uh, the final bullet that he takes. Is that a fair statement? It is, but I think you might want to backtrack a little bit because who knows? He might take over Spurs oh, if Pochettino gosh. gets fired. Yeah, can you imagine that? No, I wouldn't want that at all, actually. But yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> His career trajectory is probably is going to happen, isn't it? So uh, you heard it here first, peeps. Right, we've got about about five, six minutes left. and There's a couple of games left to go, so let's whittle through the last of the action that took place over the weekend. So Norwich versus Manchester United. Since that incredible win for Norwich over Man City, it's been pretty bleak since. One point, I believe, from the last 15 so, although they saved two penalties, they still lost 3-1. Pressure's off Man United for a little bit, you know, due to the sort of condensed nature of the Premier League table. They went from 15th on Saturday night up to 7th. So, things are a little bit less uh, doom and gloom at Old Trafford, shall we say. Yeah, for Nor- let's real quick with Norwich. Obviously, all of the bullets in the in in their chamber, they used against Manchester City. Well, yeah. And now they just cannot win and they look like they're going down. In terms of Manchester United, I actually think I, – I know it was only Norwich and Norwich are in a bad run of form. But I actually think this is a very significant win for Manchester United. Coming off the back of a draw against Liverpool and that being the first time Liverpool dropped points this entire season. Now in this match, yes, they missed two penalties. But imagine if they hit those. They win the game 5-1. That's a huge blowout. And so I think this is actually the point where Manchester United can turn the corner – Because the next few matches are fairly manageable with Bournemouth, Brighton, Sheffield United, Aston Villa. I actually think this is a time where Manchester United can climb back into the fight for top six. I don't think it's going to be, you know, a perfect uh, set of, of matches where they win all of them. But if there was ever a time, it's now. And so I think they really got to take advantage of this moment. This was a big win for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this will be the uh, the catalyst now, won't it? You know, they've got favourable fixtures, and you're right, they're not going to win all of them because the nature of the Premier League won't allow you to do that unless you're sort of right at the very top. But they'll win more than they don't, and I think, you know, they'll be, you know, fifth or sixth in a month's sort of time, and things will start to look as to where they should be at the, the moment now. So, where should we go now? Let's go to um, Newcastle. One all draw, uh, not a great game, but it, it really is watching Newcastle, to be honest. Um, Wolves the draw specialist this season they've only lost twice a season but of the 10 games they've got 6 draws so again you know if you turn a few of those draws into wins you're much higher up the table especially this season so is there some positives that Wolves can be taking I know they're in the Europa League and they seem to be managing just about but they're losing a little bit of cutting edge that they had last season yeah I think the Europa League is definitely sucking the life out of them because following a Europa League match 
I think they've only lost and draw if memory serves. And so those, you know, Thursday to Sunday matches are kind of getting the better at them at that point. I do appreciate the resilience. I do appreciate kind of the fight in them to come back on several occasions and end up earning a point. However, at, at some point in the season, you have to turn those into wins. And if they don't start doing that, I think they're going to find themselves maybe not in a relegation fight, but certainly not comfortable. And I don't think that's a good place for them to be trying to balance that and the Europa League. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think they're going to be sort of, I don't know, 10th to 13th this season, which is no no great shame. But I think second season syndrome and the Europa League is going to sort of impact them where well, it is impacting them, really. So I think it's not going to be as good a season, but they'll be just about fine. So um, I'll do the last couple because they're not really many talking points to talk about. So West Ham, Sheffield United, a draw at the London Stadium. No one in four now for West Ham. So everyone was sort of talking about West Ham in top six circles. I think that bubble's burst. That's not happening this season. Um, they're reverting back to type. That inconsistency, which has been their undoing the last couple of seasons, is now sort of showing its head again. Um, however, Sheffield United, a solid start. That's continuing. I think, you know, they're going to be well-placed if they... Keep the sort of defensive platform that they've got. They're not going to get in too many troubles because if you don't concede, you don't lose. So although they're not scoring hatful of goals, they're not shipping them at the other end either. So positives for them. And Watford Bournemouth, nil nil. That's two nil nil draws for Bournemouth in two weeks. So apologies if you're a Bournemouth fan and you're listening. There's not been a lot to cover. Watford still looking for their first win of the season. Like I say, they played ten, drawn five, which is not too shabby, but they've lost five. So, you know, they are starting to get a little bit of drift at the bottom, but there is still time to turn that around. And talking of time. We've run out. So, Drew, an absolute sterling effort once again. Wally Pip there. So, Carl, if you're listening, you've been Wally Pipped again. That's another fantastic 60 minutes from yourself, Drew. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dan. And so, to, to go a little bit deeper into the Wally Pip story, oh, yes, last week yes. I gave just kind of a background. So, the guy who replaced him, Lou Gehrig, not only did he go on to become one of the best players of all time, he also went on to play more than 2,000 straight games, which lasted for, I want to say, 70 or 80 years, which, which in, in, you know, in baseball, you play a lot of games, so I think that was maybe 12 or 15 years of him playing every single day. So, Carl, you better get back here soon, because otherwise, I'm going, this, today was two, next is 2,000, look out. Right, okay, and also, did the, uh, the chap get a tattoo? Are we any closer to that on your uh, podcast? Uh, <laughs> not yet we we are getting a little bit closer the uh, downloads have gone up which is great but we're not anywhere near the uh required number for him to get a tattoo but just as a reminder anyone listening my show on the counter with drew pals on uh, itunes android all of that my co-host recently said that if we got five thousand downloads views of the corresponding youtube uh video and everything combined he would get what I promise you is the worst tattoo of all time. So make sure, go back a couple episodes, uh, go to my YouTube channel, On the Counter with Drew Pels. It's clearly labeled with a thumbnail. You'll see it. Watch that video. Share it with all your family and friends. And let's get him to uh, ruin his own life. Yes, let's do that. Please, come on. Let's get this done. Right, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye.
Social Podcast Network.